0: Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing podcast where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people perspectives in the marketing profession and entrepreneurs and movement makers. This is your host Ryan Buchanan and I'm here with my good friend Justin Reardon, who is one of the most dynamic entrepreneurs I know and founder and CEO of Spade & Archer, the first ever guaranteed home stager first in the world. Welcome to the show, Justin.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a fun um, interview, partially because our audience can't see the, what we look like right now. Right now, Justin is always the most dapper, well-dressed human being ever in like suit pants with uh what is this like a handkerchief little pocket square yeah Yeah. and uh the Uh, Portland yeah boutonniere boutonniere all that and i look like a bald version of mark zuckerberg in my hoodie and jeans and uh it's just not pretty so
1: i would usually wear hot pants and pasties for an event like this but they were in the laundry so this is all i had that was clean and it's eight forty-five
0: in the morning uh, but if it was eight forty-five at night i would expect that for sure awesome okay uh great well we're kicking it right off today so um as we always do in this podcast uh, we start at the beginning of w- when you grew up. And you grew up in Boise, Idaho. And tell us a little bit about
1: childhood uh, growing up. Okay. So, um, super fast primer on family. So, I am the only product of my parents' marriage. Mom was married three times, Dad was married four times. I have three half sisters on my mom's side, one of whom died at like six weeks. Um, and then two half sisters and a half brother on my dad's side. Um, so a very convoluted, um, relationship there with them. If there was a button on this podcast that said it's complicated, I would push that (laughs) in regards to my family relationship. (laughs) Um, Mo lived during the school year with my mom and my stepdad. They worked for the federal government and for the Forest Service. We moved every two years. And then I would summer in Kentucky, mostly because I like using summer as a verb. Um, and so I would <laughs> summer in Kentucky with my dad, my birth father, and his wife. Um, and so it was very back and forth. We were in California, Idaho, Nevada. Um, and then uh, school, like high school, landed in Boise. That's kind of the hometown. Um, and then did my college education in Hawaii, and then San Francisco to start my um, my actual career, got married, had a kid, bought a house, did like those adulting things, and then kind of retired to Portland. So here I am. Wow, that was a huge overview. So, um... Just
0: so the audience knows, Justin and I know each other through this entrepreneur group called EO here in Portland, Um, and uh, we've hung out. Um, He and his husband came over to uh, our house, and we just had this like literally five-hour conversation that felt like 30 minutes uh, where it just flowed so easily. Um, and, but I did do a little research, um, before this interview and as we were talking, Justin and I were talking before this interview and it's like amazing how much you can find out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, and so I saw on there on Facebook that you reconnected with your half brother on your dad's side, I think, who you hadn't seen or talked to in
1: like 20 years. And what was, what was that like? Um, so it was... I was trying to find uh, that uh, petunia and onion patch so my uh, birth father was arrested um, earlier this summer uh, for being a child molester Um, and I hadn't had a relationship with him for um, nearly 20 years and so that entire side of my family there was very little relationship Um, and in thinking about how I was going to put energy into this turn of events, I was like, okay, well, do I, um, you know, condemn my father who I love for like the first, you know, 20 years of my life. Um, or do I stick up for a child molester? And both of those felt like total failures. And so in searching on how to turn this really, really negative event into something positive, um, I realized that my little brother, who I had not had a relationship with in 20 years, was incredibly alone. His mom had committed suicide. He was never married. He had no kids. He had my dad's same last name. He lived within two hours of him. Um, this just wave of condemnation was about to come crushing down on his head, and he was alone. So my sister on my dad's side actually found him um, and sa- asked him if it would be okay if I, if I talked to him. And he was like, "Yeah, sure." And so I ended up like flying out there over uh, Labor Day weekend, and um, we spent like three days together, and um, have completely like reconnected this relationship with my little bro. So it's been great. I,
0: I just got chills from that. That and and. I remind everybody it's eight forty-five, and you just, I love how you just get vulnerable, like right away. <laughs> it is unreal. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Um, yeah, you know, it, this is my reality, man. And there's some stuff that just sucks. And everybody in my family really tried to take on my dad's guilt. Everybody was like, I should have known I should have done something. I should have done this. And the fact of the matter is none of us did anything wrong. He did. And, um, as much as I hate what happened there, I also have have garnered these really fantastic relationships with my brother and sisters. And um, I didn't have that before. And so I am thankful for the opportunity as much as I am sad for the failure. So. Um, thankfulness. We
0: had dinner right before Thanksgiving and then you I saw that your brother connected with you when you uh, over Thanksgiving went to Atlanta to check out some historically black colleges with your son. Yes, right. Yes.
1: Um, and yeah, just talk about that for a little okay. bit. So he even more like <laughs> it's complicated button. So I'm gay married to a white dude. We have a son who is black. And so, um, <laughs> like a- Well, I'm not even related, but I'm not related by blood to anybody in my family, but like they're my family and they're who's important to me. Um, And so my son is in eighth grade, going into ninth grade next year. And we wanted to give him an idea of what it was that he was shooting for in high school before high school started. And so we've been visiting historically black colleges for the last couple of years. We've been to Howard, Tuskegee and Morehouse, Um, and Morehouse is in Atlanta, so we did uh, Thanksgiving in Atlanta. My little brother lives in Owensboro, Kentucky. If anybody's ever been there, it has the bluest grass in the state. Um,
0: (laughs) My um, my brother-in-law and sister, well, my brother-in-law's from Lexington, Kentucky, grew up in more like eastern Appalachia, so I don't know where Owensville is, but it might be close to there, but they've lived in Kentucky for 30-plus years, and so I'm a huge... Kentucky, UK fan, all that? It's
1: uh two hours southwest of Cincinnati, Ohio. Um and so it's like podunk Um but he flew out to Atlanta and spent a couple of days with us and got to meet my son and my brother. Family is like the most important thing to my little brother. So um getting to know his family um has been uh very important to him. So And how is the college touring part? The college tour is cool. Um, if anybody has never been to Morehouse, it's amazing. It's where Martin Luther King went to school. Like Barack Obama gave their commencement speech this past year. Like, if you're a black man and you went to Morehouse, like you're kind of a big deal. So there's uh, like 2,300 students there, for classes, so about 600 kids a year get in. It's all male. Um, it's connected to two other schools, um, Spelman and Clark. Spelman is all black women, and Clark is men and women all black as well. So these three campuses kind of shoved together. Um, and it's just amazing like if if I if he goes there which I think he very well may um, it would be really awesome that's super cool we'll get to that in a little bit Um, we are not going
0: in chronology which is totally fine sorry (laughs) but we're gonna go back to when you were a kid and um, I know you were a wrestler but um, and you now run a design agency but we're did you have like left brain, right brain activities that you were into as a kid or what were you
1: into as a kid? Uh, what was I into? So I really wanted to be a gymnast. Like I wanted to do gymnastics so bad. Mary Lou Retton was like my hero. Um, I, I wanted to not only like I wanted her to be my girlfriend and I wanted to be her <laughs> at the same time. I was like, if I could just have thighs like Mary Lou. <laughs> Um, but my parents were like, no, gymnastics is too gay. Um, you <laughs> Seriously? Need, yes. You need to be a wrestler. And I was like, because rolling around on a mat in tights is super not gay at all. <laughs> Grappling with other men. I love it. Um, and so when you're gay and you're a wrestler, the you're worried about two things. Um, I don't want to get a boner, number one. Um, and I don't want to lose. Like I didn't even care if I won. I could care less because winning was just like whatever. It didn't matter. I I, I, I gained no pride from it at all. I just didn't want to lose. Um, and why? Like why? Why that?
0: Not I don't get. For me, I'm super competitive and I want to win. But there that you're saying something different. You're saying I didn't want to lose. Yeah.
1: So um, gay men are perceived as being weak. And if you lose, then you're even weaker. And so winning didn't make me feel any stronger. It just made me feel not weak. And so, um, I was like a mediocre wrestler that by 26 matches a year, I would be 13 and 13, like every single time, uh, which was better than a lot, but like not super great. But that was not like, that was not what I was interested in at all. Like I was in like drama and, um, I, (laughs) My, I moved around my room, I'm not kidding you, like, every other week. Like, I would <laughs> I would rearrange and redecorate my room for, like, every single holiday. Um, it was what I had control over in my life, and I, like, did it. My room was always perfectly spotless. Like, it was always clean. It was always rearranged. I had, like, a huge stuffed animal collection, and I would, like, pose them in these, like, huge, like, almost, like, photographic, like, scenes, like... <laughs> What did your siblings
0: (laughs) say about this?
1: Um, They were like, you know, I was really raised with like one of my many, many siblings. Uh, My sister Joy was the one who was home the longest without Jan left when she was 14. Uh, My sister Joy on my mom's side uh, was always just incredibly supportive. My sister is... uh, incredibly motherly she's not what you would describe as like a leader she is most certainly like a supporter and no matter what i did how weird i was um she was always there like in my corner like rooting me on she was always the best um and even like to this day like i randomly received a rupaul's drag race paper doll collection in the mail the other day and it did it wasn't from anybody so i took a picture i put it on facebook i am whoever sent this to me you know me really well (laughs) And thank you. And of course, it's my sister, Joy. She sent me the paper dolls from RuPaul's Drag Race. So yeah, always just like incredibly supportive. Yeah. That's so great. And so when an adult would come to you at
0: 10 years old and you just your immediate answer, I'm thinking you might say like, I wanted to be a detective partially because I did my research and that's kind of how you got the company name. But maybe you said something totally different as a 10 year
1: old you are super close um i wanted to be a solid gold dancer
0: oh my god (laughs) but you had to have really long hair to switch it around i i love
1: solid gold they always had the best hair (laughs) they did they had the best like everything and they had this move where they would like turn their back to the camera and they would shake their butt side to side and then like wave their hands by it and we always said it's because they farted I just thought that I was like. And they were on these big blocks. Yes. 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 I wanted to be a solid gold dancer so solid bad. And that was like gold. for years. Do you know the whole song? Uh, probably. probably. What? I could dance to it for you. <laughs> was there any other lyrics besides solid gold? No, just solid gold. gold. And Dionne Warwick da, was da, the host. Da, 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 da. It was awesome. I love that show so much. Oh, and it was, good. you know, like, it just, they wore like gold lamé in every single scene, which meant that they had money. So I was like, clearly they're doing okay. They can afford global (laughs) May. I
0: noticed from the EO retreat that you like gold chains. Is that from
1: solid gold days? Probably it's, I am, uh, I'm a very hairy dude. Like I have a lot of body hair, like there's per, per pound per pound. I have more body hair than, than like head hair. Um, and nothing goes better with a hairy chest than a lot of gold chains. Um, and so I, I, I'm very taken with things that are delightfully tacky. Um, I spend my entire life like being tasteful, and so to have a chance to do something super tacky, like the gold chains get busted out every once in a while, yeah, for reals. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Um,
0: So then we fast forward into high school, and you went to Bishop Kelly, and what was the high school experience like for
1: you? So I did um, public school all the way through elementary and we moved to Boise, Idaho, where they had a Catholic school system. And my um, birth mom is Catholic. My stepdad is Jewish. And they were like, well, now's our chance to get them into Catholic school. So I went to Catholic school. I think most people would be like, oh, Catholic school is so strict and it was so um, you know, overbearing. I loved it. I totally thrived in that strictness. Um, I loved Catholic school. Um, it worked really well for me. I was captain of the wrestling team. I was on the cross country team. I was in the drama department and I was uh, junior class vice president, student body president. Like I thrived there. I was never in the popular gang. I had my own little clique of like my four boys. Um, but then I was friends with like everybody else. And so the votes were there to become student body president. And I was just like, Mr. School Spirit. I was totally into it. I was in it to win it at BK.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. You know, so you've met our 13 year old daughter, Emma, and we are, my wife and I are big public school proponents, but, uh, she's a huge basketball player and um just has a whole friend group that's going to this catholic high school um at LaSalle and when i toured it i was so pleasantly surprised around a commitment to like social justice and all these values that are like so resonate with me and so did some of those like kind of seep into you in some way in
1: high school um so i'll tell you a story how's that sound <laughs> Um, I when I was student body president, I went to um, the principal of the school and we started talking about diversity. And you know our school was like rich and white. Like the most diverse people I were was Basque people who are like the whitest of the white people. <laughs> um, and we started to talk about diversity. Uh, I knew I was super gay, came out when I was 16 to my family, but not to anybody at school. And in my own little way was like, hey, we need to have people from different walks of life come in here and talk to um, talk to our students. And to his credit, he really jumped on that and and created this Daily, this yearly event where there was one day where we were served a soup kitchen lunch, like the homeless shelter came in, like actually served a lunch that day and they brought in like 15 speakers, somebody in a wheelchair, somebody who's gay, somebody who's black, somebody who's homeless, somebody who's, and just, they just got up and they did basically kind of like TED Talks, like this is my life, this is what I do. Um, the part that sucked about it was that they named it Tolerance Day. And in 1993, I guess tolerance was like, you know, pretty advanced and I went to him I went to the principal and I was like, Yeah, I'm totally down with this whole thing, but we can't call it tolerance day. And he's like, Well then what would you call it? And I was like, Well tolerance means that like you don't approve of something and therefore you just tolerate it. It's like otherizing it. Yes. And so it was changed that first year it was changed to acceptance day. Um, And that tradition still goes on at Bishop Kelly. And um, I don't know if anybody ever like said like, hey, Justin Reardon was the one who thought of this. Um, But I love it. Uh, What makes me sad is that um, a kid that grew up on the street from me um, uh, went back to school to talk about being gay and was really demonized upon entering those doors. Um, And I guess I didn't really feel um, that there was hate within the church at that point. Uh, when I was there, but I was basically told, like, don't do it. Don't go back there. Don't talk to them. Don't show them who you are, who you become, because the only thing they're going to see is that you're gay, and the Catholic Church doesn't like that, which kind of bummed me out because I really – Bishop Kelly really gave me such a fantastic start in life that I would love to go back and return the favor. I just don't know how I'll be received there, honestly.
0: It's – you're kind of – This rebel entrepreneur, it seems like you wouldn't necessarily listen to those voices saying, don't, don't do it, don't. Um, It seems like you could, there's a possibility to have a conversation before you show up to just say, I had this really positive experience. I'm expecting that I'm going to be welcomed here. If that's not the case, then I'm not going to, you
1: know, yeah. is that? Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum. Um, The church and the gays have, have a rough relationship, man. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we get blamed for most everything they've done wrong. uh, And so, you know, after years and years and years of an organization saying that, you know, well, we wouldn't have pedophiles if there weren't gay people in the world. And I'm like, I, you know, I, I can honestly tell you, like, I've never had sex with a kid um, and I I I'm gay, but. You know, this is this organization that has just like provided this huge protection for these people that are that are doing terrible things. And you know, with my family's history, like it's visceral for me, and I have a really hard time with the church. And I'm totally torn because, again, I had this just flipping fantastic experience at Bishop Kelly, and then the church at large hates me. I mean like just hates me and it's really tough to be like hey let me give back this organization that hates my guts Um, it's it's a tough one (laughs) I get it Um, yeah we went to a really interesting place about marketing huh
0: The title of this podcast is a bit of a misnomer because it really is about humanizing brands. um, And we're getting real human here. Yeah. 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 All right. (laughs) Good. Good stuff. Um, So actually, the core of the podcast is getting to that life moment that was kind of this transformative experience where it is not a surprise that you are this successful entrepreneur because it either gave you the grit or resilience or the independence and confidence to do well later in life and so so the premise in you know in high school you you know you just mentioned you came out when you were 16 to your family but in high school or college, was there a was there a, a life moment that um, wasn't you know was it coming out was it like what was that bigger obstacle that you overcame was it more family related what was something that you that kind of gave you the grit or the confidence that you overcame in in that
1: period of your life, um, so. When I was maybe like four or five years old, my mom, um, had silicone breast implants installed. She, um, uh, she had soft tumors in her breast and she had a double mastectomy and she had implants put in to take care of that, to, to not be flat chested essentially. And she was told um, by the company that made the implants, Dow Corning, that they were super safe and they would never break, and she'd be totally fine. Well, needless to say, we all know what happened with silico breast implants—they broke. She got super sick. Um, she ended up suing Dow Corning. Um, Her—if—if if you go—if you ask anybody who's a doctor after 1984, if they've ever heard of Maria Cunha Stern syndrome or Cunha Sterns or MCS. Um, they know of it because they're taught in product liability class. This is the case that they all study is my mom's case and Maria cunha Stern syndrome is named after my mother and it's all of the illnesses that are caused by having silicone free-floating in your body. Um, they put it, they originally sold 500 ccs they, ref- they re- retrieved 350. So there's 150 ccs of silicone just like in her at any given time and her lymph node system kind of like removes it very slowly and so she gets these lumps removed and she's not in good health. Um, she sued Dow Corning in 1984 and won 1.7 million dollars. Um, and we were awarded the money um, in uh, so 2004 2007 we got I'm sorry. 1984 and she's awarded the money in 1987 and so um we went from being like super duper poor uh like you know government workers to like all of a sudden we're like you know millionaires um and it really 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 changed our family like a lot um and the whole weird the, the discussion was like we're not gonna be like one of those lottery winners who like spends all their money super duper fast um and so The first thing my mom bought was a Louis Vuitton purse because nothing says you're rich like Louis Vuitton. I mean, it's just like stamped all over that bad boy. Uh, We went on like family vacations to Hawaii. We bought new cars. My parents went to Egypt. Um, Do you remember Benetton? Do you remember that clothing store? Totally. In seventh grade, I had eight B sweaters, like (laughs) eight of them because, you know, seventh graders need that. Um, Um,
0: This was after you had the conversation that you wouldn't turn into the lottery winner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: This this is, and and so uh, I went to Bishop Kelly, which is not cheap. Like private school doesn't it's it costs a pretty penny. Um and by the time I graduated in ninety three, so we're talking six years later, there was no money for me to go to college. It was gone. Um and so my I was like, I'm gonna go to Cornell and they're like, You're going to University of Idaho and I was like, Oh, okay. Um and so I went there for two years, um, and I hated it. It was terrible. Um I'm sure it works for some people and my sister who Joy went to University of Idaho and she loved it it was great for her it just wasn't for me like I was like the gay in the village and it was not cool. Um I managed to get a cheerleading scholarship to go to college um and there was two places that offered cheerleading scholarships and architecture programs it was Tennessee Knoxville or University of Hawaii. Hmm let me think about <laughs> that. See y'all later. I'm going to Hawaii. Um so I went to school in Hawaii. I went to school for free uh, because I was a cheerleader. Um, so the athleticism of being a wrestler came in very handy. Yeah. Um, and um, I, we lived our lives. We went forward the whole thing. Um, here's the moment. So um, when I started the business, I had a business coach. And my business coach was like, well, here's what it's going to look like, Uh, you know, 10 years from now, you're going to be pulling down like this much money, this is where you're going to go. And this is how you're going to land. And I was like, it scared the crap out of me. Like, it really scared me. And I said, I don't want that. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be successful like that. And the guy was like, why? And I said, because being rich like that ruins your family and turns you into an asshole. And he's like, hold on there, sport. (laughs) He's like, just because you're going to be successful doesn't mean you have to repeat the mistakes that your family made. You don't have to buy Louis Vuitton purses. You don't have to drive a fancy car. You don't have to have a big old house. You don't have to do any of those things. You can choose to live your life the way you want to live your life. And it was that moment that I realized that money didn't have the power over me that I thought that it did. Um, and so there are certain aspects of my life that I absolutely choose to put towards my life. Like I love to dress nice. It makes me feel good about myself. I feel confident. Um, but like I drive a Jeep, like we live in a $300,000 house. Like it's just, I have zero desire to have any of those flaunty, um, statusy type symbols to show other people how much money I have. I just don't care. And it was because that business coach basically said to me, like, here's this book. It was called the millionaire next door. Mm -hmm. Um, that it's basically just a um, a profile of what the average American millionaire in the United States looks like. And they drive a solid American steel car and they live in a $300,000 house. And I was like, I can do that and be successful? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, this is amazing. So that was like my huge, my huge turning point.
0: What's going on in my head right now is, was... Was this the only time you met with this person or was this like a mentor that you'd built trust with that could
1: really say something that would stick with you? Um, I think that was like our third meeting. So okay. like one hour at a time, we'd meet every quarter. Um, I couldn't afford it. <laughs> it was way too expensive for me. Uh, but in that every quarter and it was the only person I knew that uh, had ever like worked in business before. It was before I was in EO. Um, And actually, he stayed on with me for probably the first five years of the business until I outgrew him. Um, And that was shortly thereafter is when I joined um, EO. And now I have this just community of people who get me, who understand what it is that I'm going through. And, um, you know, when I break down in tears, they understand what it is. And nobody tries to tell me how to fix my tears, they just speak from experience and say, I've been there, man, and this is what I did. And just from hearing that, oh, it's made my life so much better, so much better. The reason why I took pause
0: on that is, is just the power of mentoring is so huge. But even in a scenario where it's not like you're mentoring a kid or you're mentoring a, another person on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, but just the the i don't know what you, what happens in a conversation can change people's lives and so i just i don't know there's something in there that that is amazing to be really present in conversations because it sounds like this this other guy had a, had a really positive impact on on you she really did yeah. yeah absolutely cool so that is a good segue to kind of the I don't really love to do the whole chronology of, you know, your whole work life and then you starting your business. I do because I work with a lot of college students and um, because my daughter is going to go to college and things like that. I I really am curious about how you get your first job out of college. And then I want to fast forward to the origin story of Spade and Archer. Okay.
1: Um, so I graduate from college and I move to San Francisco because as a gay guy, I figured the best chance for me to find like my people is like San Francisco. (laughs) Um, and so I go to San Francisco. I move in with two friends of mine, uh, David and Heather. They have a two bedroom apartment and David's closet has a door that goes both to his bedroom and to the hallway. And so I offer to pay a third of the rent if I can sleep in his closet. And so literally every morning I wake up and come out of the closet. <laughs> um, so I go there, I um, I get my first job. It is with this terrible architecture company. So I got a degree in architecture. I work with this terrible architecture company that does water infiltration litigation, um, like detailing. So they draw like roof plans that won't leak in condos after a condo association has been sued um, so the work is terrible and the, the building is terrible it's like a burnt out warehouse that has a walkway that goes to the front door and there are like four dead pigeons on the way to the front door and there's one bathroom because it was only like men's bathroom because it was a warehouse and it was like multiple stalls and you could lock the door but you're the only person like in this huge bathroom there was like seven of us in the company at 6 p.m the owner of the company would take a binder off of the ashtray that was on his desk and just start smoking. And when I was like, is it legal to smoke inside of an office building? And he goes, it's six o'clock and the office is closed. If you don't like it, go home. And I was like, oh my God, God, this is terrible. Um, So I worked there for like a total of six weeks, I think. And I'd already had shotgunned out a bunch of resumes and this woman named Deborah Leifer with Interior Architects IA, which was like the prettiest firm in all of San Francisco. They had like hardwood floors and the heels of my shoes would click when I walked into their lobby and it made me super happy to be there. She calls me up and she was like, are you still looking for a job? And I was like, yes, I am. So I got this job with Interior Architects. Um, I did great. I had an awesome boss who was willing to teach me. Um, Kim Lachelle was her name. If you're listening to this, Kim, I love you. Um, We're still good friends to this day. Um, That company kind of changed and morphed. I had somebody recruit me from Gensler, which is the world's like largest architecture firm. I went and worked for Gensler. I got published like three times. Um, That was super fantastic. Went to work for a smaller architecture firm, had my kid, got laid off. Ironically, I adopted a black kid and they laid me off on Martin Luther King day. <laughs> I was like, you know, there's a special place in hell for you. Right. Um, <laughs> um, then I became a general contractor.
0: Yeah. How I was wondering, like switching from so design focused to, was it a design build general contractor or like how
1: that, yeah. th- that seems like a big switch. So I was, I'm I, Okay. In the real world, I'm like 99th percentile designer, like really, really good. In the design world, I'm like a C-plus designer. So if you take that that 1% of the world that actually does design and you put me in with just those people, I'm like a C-plus. But project management, I'm like an A, 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 A-plus, like super good project manager. And so I'm very, very good at at managing designers. Um, and when I looked at the, the project managers on the construction side, they were treated like gods and like they had cars and they had staff and assistants and like they had, they, they just looked like they were just killing it. And so when I got laid off from this, from this architecture firm, I called the construction company that I worked with all the time. And I was like, Hey, I want to come work for you. I will like fetch your coffee. I just want to get in. And, They um, put me through like three interviews and then they called me up. They said, come down to the office. I'm in the office like live in person. He goes, I want to double your salary. I want to give you a car and I want you to take three more months off to be with your son before you come start with us. What do you think? And I was like, I need to call my husband. And he goes, why? Why can't you answer right now? And I was like, because we don't make any large decisions without talking to each other first. And he was like, okay. (laughs) He's like, you have 10 minutes okay so I called my husband and I was like double salary give us a car three more months off to spend with a kid what do you think And he's like yeah and I'm like yeah so I hung up the phone and I was like yeah and he's like yeah and like I mean talk about just an awesome experience this peacock construction in um in San Francisco California Bill Peacock owns a place and like I was like the gay son like I was the guy I brought <laughs> they hired me because they like they knew that I could have relationships with people that all of the straight white dudes that worked there couldn't get and so like I all my clients were females or gay men and we brought in like work, we did work for like all the gay porn companies we built their like their sets like I became like the conduit I had that, no idea that, like I was the guy
0: I was why the isn't man. this on your LinkedIn profile yeah I don't really
1: <laughs> talk about that very much today <laughs> so I did construction for a long time um, and I love what I love about design is that everything is gray like everybody has an opinion about what you do and what I love about construction is that everything is black and white either you built it right or you didn't and what I love about home staging is that it's kind of a little bit of each like it's tons of project management lots and lots of logistics but also lots of creativity and so it's this perfect mixture of like my architecture background and my construction background and it it just makes me happy every single day
0: That's so great yeah so let's talk about how you started the business and then this detective story because I think there's some like superhero inside of you that you know that fell in love with these two fictitious detectives on some tv show or something called spade and archer so
1: okay so I was uh working for a company um here in town a construction company and I did not fit into the culture at all like at all um and, um, I saw a layoff coming. I was going to be laid off. I was being treated like everybody else who'd ever been laid off there. And so I was like, all right, I got to figure out something else to do. And I said, okay, I'm going to open up a lamp store. Um, I love lamps. They're super pretty. Um, and then I realized that I have zero retail experience. I've like never worked in a retail store, so I can't open a lamp store. So I was like, okay, if you didn't have to get paid, uh, and, and all you had to do was just be happy for the rest of your life, what would you do? And I, I thought back to like, my bedroom when I was a kid and I was like I would move around people's furniture and I was like okay so now how do you get paid to move around people's furniture and I was like oh I open a home staging company um and so I picked up the phone I called my husband uh I was driving through the gorge he was in New York at the time and I said Joe we're gonna open a home staging company we're gonna call it Spade and Archer and he was like great like literally that's all it took for him to just be like yep I mean he trusts me like that much he's like I had no question that you would totally be successful at, and you'd kill it so the name spade and archer comes from almost 20 years earlier i was living in san francisco on the corner of post and Hyde. i had made a resolution that i wanted to read all of the famous literature like all the fiction stories that were based in san francisco so i just finished reading the tales of the city which is like i don't know like eight books or ten books something like that and i started reading this book called the maltese falcon And as I'm reading this book, in the first paragraph, this guy, Sam Spade, is investigating Miles Archer, his partner. He's investigating his murder. And when he comes home, he comes home to 891 Post Street. And then he goes through the lobby, and he goes up the staircase, and he goes into my apartment. And he's describing, like, my apartment in my building in my city. While I'm reading the book in my apartment in my city, (laughs) I'm like, this is nuts. So cool. So at that moment I was like that. So Sam, uh, Sam Spade, Miles Archer had this detective agency called Spade and Archer detective agency. And I said, if I ever own my own company, I'll call it Spade and Archer because this is too weird. And so when I had the idea to like move around people's furniture, I was like, it's Spade and Archer. And then shortly thereafter we added design agency. Um, and our logo originally was like based off of the door logo that's in the movie. And so, that's where it comes from. I wanted to be named after a person but not after me and so Sam and, and Miles is where it comes from. And you kinda already described like you you were meant
0: to be a home stager, you know, from from the early days of being a kid.
1: Very early on, it was yeah. very clear that um, my spatial awareness is off the charts i can't memorize anything i 'm horrible with names i don't know anything about like dates or geography or how to spell words, but if you give me a space, like I can draw a floor plan of your house right now. bring me a piece of paper <laughs> <laughs> that's so like amazing that, that's, that's my special talent yeah some sort
0: of genius that way um, okay, so uh, you So you've got Spade and Archer, and and you've been running it for a while, and the whole industry is based off of charging for however many weeks. Like, clients pay you more and more and more for however long your furniture is in their house. Um, And you decided, I'm going to revolutionize the industry because things – like my goals do not align with the client goals from their perception. So can you talk about like how you had that aha moment to become the world's first guaranteed home stager? Yeah. <laughs> I love just saying world's first. It's just so bold and it's, <laughs> but the
1: coolest thing about all of it is that it's working, right? It's yes. working really well. Yes. So, um, the original thought process, I was looking at what our what our model does. And the thing that is the very, very hardest for people to hire us is that they have to pay us money and then trust us to actually help them get their house sold. And if we fail, they still pay us money. And the worse we fail, the more money we get. And I was looking at that and I was like, oh, my God, no wonder nobody trusts us. Like our entire industry is, is looked at as like snake oil. Like it, it just doesn't make any sense that the longer your house stays in the market, the more money I make and the less money you make. That doesn't seem fair to me. And so I was like, okay, well, how could we realign our goals so that we are looking at the same win as our clients and as our real estate agents? And I was like, well, what if we change to a commission-based structure? What if we just got paid a percentage out of closing, and if we didn't get paid, if we didn't actually help get the house sold, we just wouldn't get paid. So then we could assume all of the risk for our clients. Um, And I couldn't figure out what to call it. That was the hardest part was like, figure out what to call it. Because I went to a lawyer and and I was like, this is what I want to do. And he's like, okay, here's how we write the contract. And that's like secret sauce. That's like the Tabasco recipe. We don't talk about that. but then the hardest part was like figuring what the hell to call it. Like I, I, I we <laughs> it was called like Spaden Archer Palladium at one time, <laughs> which is a very lightweight, not very expensive metal, <laughs> which didn't make any sense. Um, I call it Spaden Archer Black because it was like supposed to be like exclusive, like only the best agents get to use this. Um, I tried to do it like as a subscription model, that didn't work. Um, and so like I <laughs> have this list in my phone of like of like twenty five different names, and all of a sudden I was like, okay, well what would people like about it? What would, what would be the thing that would be like, that sounds good. And the word guaranteed popped into my head. And I was like, oh, duh. So now we have two business models. We have what's called pay up front and we have guaranteed. And you can use either model. It doesn't, whichever one you want to do is fine. We don't force you to go either way. I'll tell you that it's technically cheaper that if your house sells in a week, it's cheaper to pay up front. But um, if your house doesn't sell in a week you probably should go with Guaranteed. And so we launched this thing um, almost a year ago. It was in January of 2018. Um, over the course of that year, we've done a lot of talking to a lot of people to explain to them what the heck Guaranteed is because it's it's different, it's scary. And um, what it's come down to is that now two thirds of our projects are guaranteed and it's working fantastically well for our clients. Uh, we have clients that come back and they're like, well, we want a discount on our rent. And, and I'm like, well, sorry. You chose not to go with Guaranteed and we're not really pushing the pay up front process anymore. I'll be glad to switch you over to Guaranteed. Like, no, no, no. I did the math and Guaranteed is more expensive. I was like, yeah, it was more expensive the first month. But now that you're 10 months into it, you would have saved about half the money if you had just gone with us. And they were like, they just people just don't want to hear it. Um, and I'm like, hey, you took a gamble, man, and that's risky. That sucks. And I wish you had listened to us in the first place when we told you that Guaranteed was a good deal. Um, so I don't know. it's been like great. Yeah,
0: I, I think because this is a marketing and entrepreneur podcast that I feel like some of the best marketing campaigns are literally the best. Tweaking the business model to align with the customer like that, probably. If if you had to identify your um, your best marketing strategy, would you maybe w- would you define it differently? Would
1: you talk about a different tact that you took? It's interesting. I don't really look at guaranteed as a marketing strategy. I look at Brand. guaranteed as like as a realignment of our goals. Um, and so like, I think that probably like our most effective marketing strategies is like how we enter a new city. So whenever we enter a new city, my lovely husband, Joe Reardon, um, bakes a massive amount of cookies by hand, like a humongous amount of, of chocolate chip cookies. It's my niece's recipe. Courtney, if you're out there, thank you for the recipe. You're the bomb. Um, and they're the most delicious chocolate chip cookies ever. Um, we put them onto a real porcelain plate. We pair them with a bottle of milk, like in a glass bottle, like locally homogenized milk. We put a picture frame with our with our with our card in it. Port? Do you have port with it? Like you know, like the um... port and cookies? Yeah, we totally. Do, we, we do milk, but we totally could do port. You give people the choice. Sweet. Yeah, like okay. adult it up a little bit. Uh, yeah. So the the genius part is not the cookies. The genius part is the plate and the bottle. Because I walk in with this, with this milk and cookies, I drop it off at an office and I say, Hey, I'm going to come back tomorrow and pick up the plate and the bottle. So there's no waste for this. So we're showing right there that we're like, we're green and it looks pretty. So we're showing that, you know, we've got some good taste and I leave and they look at me like I'm a total idiot. Like, what are you doing? And I just walk out the door. I come back the next day to pick up the plate, and they're like, oh, my God, Justin, those cookies were phenomenal. And I was like, oh, did you like them? They're like, yes, they're so good. I was like, would you like the recipe? And they're like, yes, I totally want the recipe. And I'm like, great. Give me your email address. So all of a sudden, not, I'm not spending, sending spam because real estate agents hate spam. They despise it. They get a 1,000 pieces of mail a day. They're now asking me to send them something, and all I'm going to send them is a recipe card that has our name and our, our website, you know, the world's first guaranteed home stager. And I'm like, oh, by the way, we also teach these classes where we bring in lunch or a Japanese whiskey tasting or a breakfast, and we teach these classes on, like, you know, luxury demographics and how to tell the difference between them. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, you're, you can give us more tasty food? great so then i get invited back to these presentations in their offices and then from there i talk about guaranteed like they always ask something about pricing and so then we launch into a guaranteed talk and then we get these consultations and from the consultations we get projects so it all starts with
0: cookies no milk and cookies that is so american it's it is so like uh old school marketing (laughs) (laughs) it's just ridiculously like bring it back uh it's really silly yeah So one of the, this real estate strategy, what was the video that I told you? Oh, real estate, social, yeah. Social, yeah. Yeah. I loved, because I don't, my wife is a realtor, and, um, but when I listened to that, or watched that video, I loved your analogy, and it was kind of a tip uh, to realtors and to people who own homes, of... Tina Turner's backup dancers. Like that's <laughs> what you are to the staging world. Can you
1: talk about that analogy? Yeah. So, I mean, in most interior designer, actually in almost all design, your job is to, like grab somebody's attention and to like, you know, make them pay attention to you. And our job is to not do that. Um, we always like in the house is Tina Turner and we are the backup dancers. Um, and so we have to be good. You got to be good. You just can't be better than Tina. Um, Because if you show up the star, then they didn't pay to see the backup dancers. Nobody bought a ticket to see a backup dancer. Um, They're super glad you're there. You just shouldn't be more important. And so our job is to constantly like to try to design these spaces to show the purpose, the scale and add light and do absolutely nothing more than that. And so we're very tempered in our design as far as our aesthetic goes. Um, Yeah, that's a that's a giant one.
0: That's so not you in real life. Like you, you would outshine Tina Turner like 10 times out of 10 it is. as evidenced <laughs> by how you danced with storm large at a retreat at Brissada ranch for EO.
1: That may have been my most heterosexual moment of my entire life. Uh, if anybody has ever gotten a chance to storm large, to dance with storm large, you should really do it. Cause I felt really masculine at that point. It was awesome. <laughs> um it's been a weird thing for me ryan i will tell you the honest god truth like i don't really try to uh to overpower a room it's like i can't help it it's like i can't stop myself it's really weird and then people walk up to me like oh my god justin how are you and i have no clue who they are and i'm like a deer in headlights because you mix that with like a terrible memory And then like this personality that's like ridiculous. And I just look like a total dick like all the time. And I'm like, can you remind me where I know you? And then they're like, oh, I hate you now because you're a total fraud. (laughs) It's really frustrating. (laughs) That is a
0: BS imposter syndrome thing that we all have. But I know that you're not a fraud. Thank you for Um, calling me on my bullshit. I appreciate it. So last two questions.
1: Uh, One person who inspires you. Who is that right now? Uh, It's been really consistent for a long time. And uh, I I, I think it sounds like such a tried answer, but um, Helen Keller has really, like, literally changed my life in the most random and most appreciated ways. Um, So uh, when I lost my job, uh, I got fired. Um, When I switched between architecture and construction, um, it was on Martin Luther King Day, and I was just... Pissed off, and I was sitting in the dining room, sulking, feeling sorry for myself. And I opened up a magazine, like Time magazine, and the um, the headline story was happiness. And I flipped open a page, and there was a very large print quote from Helen Keller, and it said, um, "So often when a door closes, most people fail to notice the open window next to it." And I was like, "Get over yourself." Here is this woman; she's blind she's deaf and she's saying like oh well you're missing the opportunity and then um you know things started getting really scary right in the beginning when we first opened the company and i was up to my eyeballs in debt uh we we never had any financing from anybody we just i used my personal credit cards and when you finance a company at 28 percent, it's very frightening Um, And my husband bought me a birthday card and um, it was a picture of like a car going off of a ramp. And the quote was from Helen Keller and the quote was um, a life without risk is nothing at all. And again, I'm like, again, if there's this woman that can go through life and her only sense is touch and smell, how, how can I dare feel sorry for myself? And so she just continues to touch my life in, in on a regular basis a friend of mine katherine madison um, i told her this story two weeks ago and uh, she showed up at dinner uh, two nights ago with a book of quotes from her and i broke out in tears <laughs> and i said you very rarely do you feel like you're actually listened to and you listened to me and then acted upon it it was one of the most thoughtful things anybody's ever done for me. And I mean, it's like, you know, it's like a $5 book, but like she'd listened to me and I felt like I was really heard. So every morning I wake up, I put on my clothes and I put my wallet on top of that book at night so that when I pick up my wallet, I have to pick up that book and I read one quote from Helen Keller. And every day I realize that like no matter how shitty my day is, it has never been as shitty as any of Helen Keller's days. So yeah, she's big to me. Uh, that's.
0: I th- I think I need to read some more of her quotes. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry. No, that's uh, uh. right up my alley. Um, last question is: Is there anything the audience might not know about you? Kind of that you haven't shared already of maybe a big hurdle that you've overcome or you know I think you've had kind of a big year of some big things happening um but as you look back across your your life like what yeah what might you
1: share um i i've actually shared with you like my biggest my biggest crap like you're 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 in my underwear drawer at this point yeah <laughs> Um, what what does that mean? I
0: don't even know what that means. Something,
1: (laughs) no, like, you know, that I wear a padded thong, like you, you understand. Um, so, uh, the biggest one, I think the biggest one this year that we really haven't talked about because we are very purposely framing the story, um, in a way that I, I want it to be spun in the right way. Because, um, so I own a business that has offices in Portland and Seattle. We have a couple thousand square feet up in Seattle, a couple thousand square feet in Portland. We hold all of our inventory there. They're hugely important to us. And on the 4th of July, my building burned down in Seattle, like it burned to the ground and I lost everything. Um, and in talking to my marketing and PR person, um, she wanted to do a press release and talk about, like, hey, we had this huge loss. Um, and we sure do hope we come back. And I was like, mm, I don't think so. It was great because we had no signage on that building. It was kind of in a sketchy part of town. And the building next door where the fire actually started, the news media latched onto that guy's story and did a huge ton of stories on him. Um, and I was totally left out. And I was really happy because now we're going into this process where um we're starting to talk about that fire and what came from it uh we ended up in a building that was twice the size we doubled the size of our staff we had our red to black moment where we for the first time in the history of our company we have more cash than debt um like this thing literally became like a flop opportunity for us like we just it was this huge flop that I thought was going to maybe shut us down and cut us, reduce us by half the size. It became a giant opportunity. We ended up growing by a full third. Um, and, um, I am just incredibly thankful that this really horrendous thing happened to me because I'm in such a better place than I was before. And so now we get to spin this story of like we were the phoenix rising from the ashes. Um and so literally. I literally yeah I I have like I have control over how we present this to our public and we get to use it to our advantage and I I'm very very fortunate that we were not in the spotlight when it was really bad because it was when it was bad it was really
0: bad. Justin, thank you so much for sharing so openly, and uh, I think our audience has a ton of golden nuggets to take away from all that you shared. It was great.
1: Would you say that they are
0: solid golden nuggets? (laughs) Solid gold. I got to get the soundtrack to play (laughs) throughout, like on repeat over and over behind the whole interview (laughs) this whole thing it's gonna be amazing
1: ryan this has been absolutely amazing you are killing this podcast world Uh, thank you so much for having me it's awesome